This is the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribbs here with Chris Funderberg, and we are talking Kurosawa today. We are talking high and low. This is part of my theory that this is, this is a film, Chris, that we've talked about on other podcasts. We've written about extensively on the website. My theory is you can talk about a truly great movie forever, right? You could do 50 podcast episodes devoted just to high and low. That's my that's my theory. I want to just ask you just to start things off. Other than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is there any film that you could talk about more confidently and at greater length than Akira Kurosawa's High and Low? Uh, there must be. I mean, Miami Blues has got to be up there, right? Miami Blues, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. That I could talk about. But um, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I mean, certainly any Errol Morris movie I could talk about as, you know, something something like uh, uh, Thin Blue Line or uh, Fog of War I could talk about, I think, fairly confidently and for a long time. Uh, but, you know, there's certainly not not many. I'm like looking at my DVD shelf and being like, Clue? Lady Eve? I don't know. It's possible. Bubble Boy, maybe. Yeah. No, it's, but it's got to be top 10, right? Yeah, no, for sure. You know, when I, when I was saying to you, hey, let's do a film that you and I both know really well, to me, it was a little bit of a thought experiment um, where I sort of had the opposite approach to it of is it possible to talk about a movie that we know this well you know i remember um terence rafferty who's my favorite film critic of all time new york times and and new yorker film critic his book the thing happens has like a 30 page opening chapter on rules of the game and so when i was programming the movie theater we had rafferty come to talk about rules of the game because this 30 page opening chapter on rules of the game, which is not a movie that I connect with at all is incredibly brilliant writing. Every time I read this, this essay, uh, extended essay on rules of the game, I'm like, God damn, that must be the best movie ever made. I'm going to watch it again. And, and then I'm like, I still don't get it, but it was going to have Rafferty come talk after rules of the game. And I had such big expectations for this talk. He's a fantastic guest. We'd have him come to the theater all the time. He's a, you know, fantastic writer. And his talk after rules of the game was terrible. It was really, really terrible. It was really um, flat and sort of not interesting and not engaging. And I realized that just he knew the movie too well. The things that were, uh, uh, interesting to a general audience that wasn't incredibly well-versed in this movie, he just forgot to say. He forgot to talk about how Renoir ended up casting himself in this movie and really about the negative reaction to it where people were apparently tearing seats out of the theaters and stuff. He just didn't tell any of the basics about it because that stuff is so incredibly old hat to him. You know, at that point, I bet he had been living with those stories for 40 years you know, and had heard them so many times that he just, he didn't, he didn't have the handle. And that's what I was wondering about with this movie with high and low is if we picked Texas Chainsaw Massacre or high and low, or you're really right. Like what else, what else is there that we could talk about? Maybe second breath, you know, that we know this well. Um, Would it be possible 
to to actually be interesting you know would it actually be possible to be interesting and have something to say about it you know obviously our website is named after this movie we have a lot of connection to this movie and um I was also thinking about our, we just talked to our good friend, Bill Tech on the Peter Bogdanovich and Memoriam episode. I was re-watching One Day Since Yesterday, his lovely movie about uh, trying to rediscover and save, they all laughed. And Quentin Tarantino actually at, towards the end does a little talk. I, I don't know if this is in the finished version. We were actually watching his director's cut. Um, Tarantino talks about how he was worried about losing they all laughed that he had watched it too many times. And he was saying to Bogdanovich, you know, I was worried about it, but I watched it again and it came back. You know, Bogdanovich was saying, yeah, that happens. Sometimes you watch movies by, by lose movies by watching them too much. And sometimes they're gone forever. And sometimes they surprisingly come back, you know, that if you, you can watch Rio Bravo and it'll stop having that effect. And I, that's something I worry about that happened to me with Miami Blues. I had to stop watching Miami Blues because the last time I watched it like three or four years ago, I was like, oh, I, I lost this movie. This is not impacting me at all. I'm going to stop watching this for a while and see if it comes back. High I had low. that with Big Trouble in Little China myself. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's, it's weird because I'm not saying I think Miami Blues is no longer good. I'm saying it has no impact on me anymore. It didn't, right. it didn't work for me. And watching High and Low this time, I was thinking, you know, it's really weird. How many times have I seen High and Low? It's certainly not a movie I overwatch. I've probably only seen it 10, 12 times in my entire life. It's not up there with Strozek or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Hudsucker Proxy, the movies that I've seen in excess of 50 or 60 times, you know? Um, it's, it's a movie that I have not necessarily overwatched but it was weird to watch a thriller where i know in advance the details of every bit of plot machination when you first watch a thriller watching the story unfold in a thrilling way is really interesting and what i found first off watching this movie and i guess that will open up uh, a little bit of the conversation about it is that this movie still works incredibly well even when the thriller elements are meaningless when you're not thrilled by it per se where you're not going oh my god what's going to happen with the kid is he going to live or going to die what's going to happen with kengo gondo all of that um it still really plays do you just want to take us through the plot of it real quick and i will say at the beginning we're going to discuss this movie in incredible detail spoilers beyond spoilers just watch it first it's one of the greatest movies ever made and then come back and listen to the episode. But all episode, all films we talk about in detail, but this is a thriller with twists and turns, and we're going to completely look at all of them in depth. Right, so the plot of High and Low, we start, the very first, the first half of the movie is set entirely in the house of Kingo Gongo, who is an executive at National Shoes. He is arranging an aggressive move to buy up a majority share of the company, take it over, thereby defeating both the current old-fashioned chief executive whose ideas for shoe production are out of touch and the totally unethical three junior executives whose concept is to produce stylish yet unendurable footwear, the idea being that the shoes fall apart, thus forcing the customer to return to buy a new pair. Gondo is a more ethical kind of businessman. He wants to make good product. He's got a lot of business ethics inside of him. Um, and he has mortgaged and borrowed on everything, right? This is a do or die maneuver that must happen immediately and succeed or he's bankrupt. And then he is victim of 
the absolute worst timed kidnapping in history for him, not for the kidnapper. It actually turned out great for the kidnapper. But what happens is the kidnapper attempts to kidnap his young son and accidentally instead kidnaps the son of his chauffeur, um, Aka. Aki is his name. Yeah, Aki is the... Uh... Yeah. The chauffeur. Uh, Aoki's the chauffeur. Aoki, okay. Aoki. Shin, Shinchi's his son. Okay. Kingo Gondo, and I'd like to point out, Kingo Gondo sounds like a Godzilla monster to me. <laughs> and uh, and his they son should have named a kaiju after him at some point. Exactly. Yeah, didn't happen. So yeah, so uh, Shin, Shinichi gets kidnapped instead. And when Gongo first thinks that his son is kidnapped, he is one hundred percent willing to pay the ransom to do anything he needs to get his son back. But when he learns that it's actually Aiki's son then he says oh well this is not my problem like why should I get involved with this at all but the kidnapper is going to make him pay the ransom so it becomes this and there's a great moment too where uh Kingo Gondo is when he thinks it's his son he's like don't call the police it'll endanger Jun then when he finds out it's actually uh the chauffeur's son he says call the police immediately and everyone's like wait what he wants to do is call the police uh, so it sets up a tense 24-ish hour melodrama where they're waiting to hear from the kidnapper and there's this moral thing where he do, you know, doesn't know, should he pay the ransom? Should he go ahead and send his uh, assistant out to uh, buy these shares and, and make this move, this business move? And uh, what it ultimately comes down to is that it's interesting because he does make the right decision, but it's kind of taken out of his hands a little bit because he hesitates and his assistant, who's like this upward moving kind of guy, decides this guy doesn't have the balls to do this. He sells him out to the other partners. And so basically the deal falls apart anyway. And so he pays the ransom. But because always, he has no other choice. Right. But I always love watching that part because while it is technically a decision that's taken out of his hands, it's still a, a moment where they really respect him when he call, he picks up the phone and calls the bank and everyone is relieved that he's actually going to do this for his chauffeur and for this kid and save his life and you know the police have come in and they we kind of learn we kind of meet them as characters not even guaranteed to save his life that's one of the things that's very pointed too is the police are he's like if if i pay this ransom can you guarantee that we'll get the kid back and the police all look at each other and are like well the thing about that is you could ruin your life for no reason you know exactly well of course the kidnapper no guarantee so inspector uh takura played by of course great uh, Tetsuya Nakadai and uh, fantastic character uh, Boston, right? Taguchi, the, the bald uh, yeah. uh, headed cop who is uh, a very empathetic character. Yeah, played and, uh, by you know, uh, Sutomu uh, Yamazaki. And this, or no, 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 that's, I'm no, no, sorry. No, no, no. That... Kenjiro uh, Ishiyama plays him. Yes. Wait, yeah. let me say that. Say that. Kenjiro Ishiyama plays him. And um, this, that's the only movie he ever did with Kurosawa, which is interesting too, because Kurosawa works with a lot of the same actors. Mifune and Nakadai had already worked together. Uh, this is this is like uh, in the midst of the the run up to Redbeard. So they do uh, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, and High and Low, like basically three in a row. Those guys. Yeah, and most of his cast is in at Sleep Well. A lot of his cast is in Redbeard. So yeah, it's a lot of his regular stable actors. Yeah. So these cops are there and they see this kind of thing playing out. They come to respect Gondo for making this decision uh, when he has to, when he's forced to this great moment where you get the great classic Mifune freak out where he has to 
throw the attache cases of his money out of the speeding train as uh, part of the exchange. And he's saying, this is my life. I put this in my life in this case that he's throwing out the window. Uh, but then you get that an amazing moment where they find uh, Shinichi unharmed and he runs toward him in this, oh my God, this is great, fantastic musical sting. And Bosun uh, cries. He turns it, the framing of that shot is great too because the detectives are in the forefront of the frame and, uh, and the chauffeur, uh, Aoki and uh, Shinchi are tiny in the back of the frame coming together. And Boston, who's in the, it's the backs of the detectives and Boston turns and hides from all of them to, to wipe the tears away from his face. It's a wonderful yes. shot. It's amazing. Gondo runs for Shinichi, that uh, Masaru Satu sting, musical sting. You get choked, as choked up as, yes, you're right. as Boston it's does. Yeah. It's terrific. And it is one, just, just past one hour of the movie. It's perfect. It is yeah. perfect. And then he says, uh, Nakadai says, now go get him for Gondo's sake. Be bloodhounds. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, there's nothing I would change about this movie. And then the second half of the film deals with the investigation afterwards, finding the guy, getting the money back. And you kind of get this whole new movie, which is a police procedural. We kind of check in with Gondo here and there to kind of see where his life is at. But it becomes not about the cops. Good. Not it's too good. Not good. It becomes about the cops, it becomes about the kidnapper. We learn more about him and, you know, his kind of desperate situation and his, his motivation for the crime. So that's basically the setup of the film. And it's, uh, it's terrific. It's terrific. And Mifune, of course, plays Gondo. So every time we're with him, he is dominating the scene as he, as he just wanted to. Um, but also being sort of pushed around like a caged animal. You know, the, uh, one of the interesting things about this movie is the first time I watched it, I thought it was going to be a single location film like uh, sure. Hitchcock's mm -hmm. Rope or Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, that it was all going to take place on this one location because um, it's all takes place in King Gondo's beautiful mansion on the hillside overlooking the city, you know, the stately air-conditioned mansion. Yeah, and, um, and it's at exactly 55 minutes, almost exactly, that we finally leave this place. But so for the first 55 and go to the train for the money drop, you think, oh, we're just going to stay in here. We're just going to stay in this, this mansion the whole time. That'll be, it's a single location film. That's really cool. And also because the framing and staging of the section um, is so spectacular. You think, oh, this is the trick he's trying to pull off is how to make this section amazing. I, I think that this section is literally unequaled in cinema in terms of blocking and staging and um, mise-en-scene and camera framing. If only yeah, because of actors in one frame and they're, none of them are looking the same direction. <laughs> It's just, it's so incredibly well put together, but I, it's, there's movies that have incredible framing and staging like this, but they're not as continuously sustained as this, that this is sort of every moment has a new staging, has a clever arrangement of these characters that draws your attention to aspects of the frame and pushes it away. I mean, there's all these amazing moments in it, like when Mifune is sort of, uh, cornered by the chauffeur and he's pacing up and down the room and his shoulder is against the blinds to emphasize the curtains just how he has nowhere to go or when he's sitting in the dark on the chair and finally stands up when they're trying to um, put the uh, the uh, the secret capsules in the 
uh, attache cases that will um, let off a pink smoke, the name of our site, uh, when they're burned so that if the um, kidnapper tries to get rid of evidence by burning the attache cases, they'll see where it's burning and be able to go to it, right? And, and they're trying to figure out how to get these capsules into the attache cases without being found. And Mafune is sitting in the background. You don't even see him. And he stands up out of the darkness and is like, let me help. I'll get my old leather working tools and show you how to do it. And just he's constantly appearing like that. There's the close-ups where his wife is just clinging to his back, you know, when they're receiving the ransom calls. Uh, it's just, it's it's all just incredibly well shot and put together this initial sequence and um and then the second half opens up and is almost it sort of goes back to stray dog territory it's just like a shoe leather wandering the city you know uh putting the pieces together we can hear a coin being dropped so this came from a payphone and we hear a single kind of single pole cable car coming by and you know just putting all the details together in a very like um police procedural way it's really it's it's a very fascinating film with with i always think of it as having two halves this time watching it i realize the last 20 minutes or so is given over to the kidnapper is that it's given over to uh to yama yama it's given over to um yamazaki as genjiro tekuchi the medical student who is uh, putting together this this robbery with the help of two heroin addicts that he's uh, selling dope to on the side and are sort of in his employ for it. And he really takes it over for that last 20 minutes. It's, it's really more a film this time. It's funny. I got it as a sense of a film with three parts, but they are sort of seamlessly integrated. They're just so well set up. It's so elegantly put together you know one of the pieces i wrote on this film for the website is comparing um the ed mcbain 87th precinct novel called king's ransom that the movie is based on to this and one of the ways that's most impressive is that he changes kurosawa and and his screenwriters change the uh structure so elegantly that the the book has a very standard you know uh it has the three different groups it has, you know, King, Douglas King. Uh, it has the cops and then it has the bad guys. And one chapter will be Douglas King. Then one chapter will be the cop, be the cops. Then one chapter will be Douglas King. Then one chapter will be the cops. Then one chapter will be the villains. And it repeats that over and over. Then one chapter will be. This integrates all of the different characters together in a very elegant way where they are all sort of pieces flowing in and out of each other. So when that the film is handed off, it's, you know, the simplest metaphor is they're like marathoners handing a baton off. As well, it's especially moves. effective in that first half of the movie when we're yeah. stuck in the one location because we see the executives in the house and they seem so unwelcome, you know, they just seem so incongruous with everything else. They don't seem like they belong there. And then the cops who come there and they're strangers. They've never met Gondo before, but they seem like a natural part of this environment. And it becomes interesting to their relationship because the, he and the cops form this kind of immediate trust where, you know, they're kind of relying on each other where he needs to do something for them. They need to do something for him. And they're constantly reassuring him as the situation. It's important too to have Gondo in this kind of contained environment because he's going to go through a major character change in the first half of this movie where at the beginning he's become so jaded, so cynical 
about business and everything that's been going on that he has formed this very aggressive exterior where it's kill or be killed. And he has that great line where he tells uh, his son, Hey, if you guys are playing, you know, uh, outlaw and sheriff and you're the outlaw, don't run away, hide, and then ambush the sheriff and kill him, you know, which ever, which shocks his wife yeah. to hear him talk like that. I also love that that kind of foreshadows um, something because his assistant uh, Kawanishi is standing is uh, uh, later on when he's strategizing how he's going to take over the business. He does it in front of the kid when he tells his kid to, to, to the strategy. He tells yeah. it in front of the chauffeur's kid. So he's given everything away by telling his son this, just like he's going to give everything away when he talks about his strategy in front of the assistant who's going to you know stab him in the back later on. Yeah. But anyway, because he goes through this big <clears throat> change, because he goes through this big change and he's trapped in this environment, you know, it's 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 almost like Kurosawa is forcing this change on him. They have to close the blinds so the kidnapper doesn't know that the cops are there, make it even more like a cage environment, like everyone is just yeah. stuck in a prison together in this big beautiful house and that's again one of the uh, beautiful geography throughout the entire film yeah one of the great metaphors the the original japanese title of this movie is heaven and hell right which is a much much better title high and low sort of soft pedaling it but a lot of the ideas is how you know this man's heaven turns into hell how it becomes a cage how his heaven is sort of a fallen place and the relationship between heaven and hell that like one of the powerful uh, uh, points of hell is an awareness of the existence of heaven. That when you're down in hell, living in the slum, looking up at Gondo's house on the hillside, that's when you know you're in hell because you can see heaven up there, right? Meanwhile, up in heaven, it's becoming a cage. He's becoming trapped in a hell there, you know? And I think that that's um, certainly high and low is just not uh, all of the concepts in the metaphor of high versus low are also contained within heaven and hell. This is a movie that you really should think of in your mind as being called heaven and hell. And that certainly I do. I don't think of it as high and low at all. And there's, you know, that's even to the talk at the end when the kidnapper is on death row and he talks about, you know, I'm much more comfortable in hell because I was born there. I think my hands would really tremble if I had to go to heaven, right? There's all of that kind of thing throughout this movie. Uh, really, all of those heaven and hell uh, metaphors about suffering and release. Right. And, His and even, motivation doesn't become that he wants to go to heaven. He wants to get this money and spend it. It becomes he wants everyone to suffer, wants everyone to be in hell. And that's yeah. exactly what he does to Gondo and his family in the first half of the film. John, In terms of we... the structure, real quick, in terms of the structure, mm -hmm. uh, when Nakadai says, save the child first, then catch the kidnapper, that's great. That sets up the structure of this movie exactly the way it's going to play out, right? Of course, yeah. we're going to deal with the kidnapping, save the child, and then go catch the kidnapping. It sets up a, a morality, too, that, you know, mm -hmm. where, where he says, hey, this is not about money. This is not about business and, and like your life and your success. This is now about a child's life. That's what's going to come first. And after that, then we'll go and get this guy. Then we'll become the bloodhounds. It's a nice way to set things up for what's going to happen. Yes, I agree. I agree completely that there's just, this is one of those, I mean, the direction when you watch it, you're like, holy shit, how can anybody be this good of a director? That's, that's right. definitely something you watch. Watching it more and more, you're like, this script is incredible. You know, just everything about this script uh, is completely incredible. And there's a, a story that I heard once, I'm not sure if it's in Kurosawa's biography, 
but that Kurosawa as a screenwriter was always such a fantastic screenwriter. And as an exercise, the assistant directors, when they were on like the train on the way to work each morning, they would give each other a theme and then try and construct a scene around that theme. And the theme would just be like heat, right? And they would say that Kurosawa's themed scenes would always be like so incredibly detailed and inventive, just like on the spot that he had this incredible knack for tying the moment he's creating together to this theme in such intricate ways. And he could do it uh, offhandedly. He could do it off the top of his head. And this is a movie definitely where you feel that, where it's like, how did, just how is this so well written? I, I feel like it's impossible to write a movie this good. And I should mention that it basically throws out 95% of the book. There's very little of the book in this movie. He really just takes the basic setup, the moral quandary of, you know, should this businessman pay the ransom for a kid that isn't his own, even though it'll ruin him? That's like basically all it takes from the book. Yeah. And since the whole first half is all tension about like worrying about the boy and whether or not he's going to pay the ransom, it's amazing that he has these narrative innovations like uh, cutting flash forwarding after he gets the phone call to listening to the taped recording of the phone call. So it doesn't become about the tension of that phone call. It becomes about everyone kind of absorbing this new information and kind of working together and kind of picking up these pieces and deciding what the next move is going to be has just all these brilliant, innovative ideas like that. That is just. Yeah. And then the second phone call is hap- does happen in real time. And so you've seen them think about what they're going to try and do. So it's sort of, you see them sort of planning the wheels turning and then you see them try and do it and it not uh, maybe necessarily going the way um, that you think it's, it's going to go. And yeah, and also another thing I noticed watching it this time, when we're first really introduced to the kidnapper, we see him listening to the radio report about the kidna about the kidnapping so that mirrors the phone call sort of when we're first introduced to the to the ransom the police are listening and hearing at first and then the kidnappers listening and hearing at first you know it's it's an interesting way to show uh that again but one thing i also felt watching this time the um about that opening uh 55 minutes is that the movie about the business deal that's going on is great that is great on yeah. its own. You don't need the kidnapping plot. It sets up, you're very well invested in the, there's these shitheads who are trying for a takeover and our boy Gondo who cares about making uh, affordable but high quality shoes. He's got this planning in place and he's got an underling that you don't know whether to trust him or not. And he's putting these machinations in place and he's got stuff up his sleeve and that stuff is great. And I don't think the movie works without those business deals being great and impactful on their own because you're caught up as an audience and yeah, get those fuckers. And then when the rug gets pulled out, you're like, oh shit, like he can't pay that ransom. But if it was just, if that stuff wasn't as good, the idea that he doesn't want to pay the ransom wouldn't be felt. You wouldn't have any sympathy for what him whatsoever. You'd be like, fuck Kingo Gondo. You know, Kingo dies. You'd be like, fuck <laughs> Kingo Gondo. You know, you yeah, wouldn't no, be on that's his what... side at all that's what really sets up this great layered characterization of him too, because we can see this ruthlessness, you know, that he is exhibiting, even though it's in a good place, it's not the way to live, right? It's not the way you would want a person to be, but at the same time, because like you said, 
he's clearly the ethical superior in these early scenes and you feel like he's in the right he should run the company this is the way it should go you definitely feel for him at the same time and you want that deal to go through you want him to be able to there's take an over there's an ethical impulse to the deal it's not a purely self-serving uh well, not at deal all, right yeah and so it's not just self-serving versus ethical thing to do right yeah, it's not a, it's not a move it's that's going to like make him ethical yeah it's not a move that's going to make him instantly rich it's something that he you know he's only going to be able to afford the down payment and then he's got to make the business successful just to pay back uh, the creditors just to make just to pay for the rest of these shares that he's buying. So he is investing in himself here. You know, it's not even like he's going for like some kind of a deal where he's going to sell the company and then sell it to someone else and then totally gut it and then make a huge bundle. He's actually like investing in this. He believes in this idea that he's going to go out and do. And if it's if it fails, that's it for him. Like he has put 100 percent of he's completely he's all in in this deal. Yeah, I do want to I do want to back up a little bit and sort of step back from the movie for a second. I used that we were going to do this episode as an excuse to reread Kurosawa's amazing something like an autobiography. It's there alongside Boonwell's My Last Sigh is like essential reading. You probably only ever need to read those two autobiographies for film autobiographies. That's probably enough. And everything else can be fun and interesting, but those two are probably all you need. Uh, it's in it. the first book I ever bought by a director about their life, for sure. The first autobiography by a director I ever bought. Yes. And this time reading it, you know, something we talk about on the, the um, show a bit is that I like to explore the artworks themselves. I don't want to sit here and tell you, Kira Kurosawa was born on X and Y day and he comes from this family heritage and he did this as a kid and the film was made, you know, all of that DVD extra shit. I feel like there's a kind of academia approach that's bled into approaching art that's, uh, you know, that we should talk about Surviving Desire someday, I'm thinking about, that would be another movie we could talk about endlessly. But where there's these college students who are miserable in Martin Donovan's class because he just wants to keep talking about this one paragraph. I believe you are uh, kind at heart, sincere at heart. I believe, I can't even I believe remember. I believe that you are true and sincere. Yeah. I believe that you are true and kind. Uh, I can't get it. <laughs> now that you I'm are on the right path, never straight from it. But it's this paragraph from the brothers Karamazov that the students are like, all we've done for three months is talk about this paragraph. And he's like, it's an important paragraph. We should go over it. And then when he's finally broken down, defeated at the end, he gives this lecture that's about like, this is what happened to him during these various wars. This is blah, blah, blah. When he's defeated and the students are like, great, we got that information. I feel like that academic approach where like trivial knowledge, like literal, literal trivia about a filmmaker and the making of a film bleeds into your analysis and sort of replaces analysis that if that if you know the biographical information about a movie that can replace your analysis of what's happening about it and if you read a lot of essays especially academic essays and critical essays now you will find a lot more written about the production and behind the scenes information than specific examples and specific analysis 
of scenes and movies and moments talking in depth about a performance, uh, aesthetic gestures taken apart in some way. It's just going to be a lot more talking about here's what happened behind the scenes. And I've always had an incredible antipathy to that since as early as I can remember thinking about film. And I realized I got that from this book that I read this book early on and it was formative in his preface. Kurosawa talks about like, I made these films to just stand for themselves. I didn't want to write an autobiography and you're going to be frustrated, but this autobiography ends with Rashomon, which to me is like, I'll explain later why I did that and ended with Rashomon. Uh, But it's like, uh, just to explain it, it's like how Diane Arbus took thousands of photographs, right? Her whole career, she's made a bunch of photos and then suddenly she labeled one on the back of it, number one after she had been a photographer for like 10, 12 years, suddenly there was a photograph labeled number one. And then the next one was number two. And the next one was number three, right? That's what Rashomon is. It's number one. He suddenly labels that movie number one, right? And he's not going to tell you about the movies after he's developed as an artist. He's going to tell you about developing up until that point, you know, which sort of throws stray dog under the bus. But he's uh, he's going to talk about his sort of prehistory before he's expressing himself correctly, he feels like. But in this intro, he quotes Jean Renoir. He quotes Jean Renoir's autobiography. So this is what Jean Renoir says in his autobiography. Many of my friends have urged me to write my autobiography. It is no longer enough for them to know that an artist has freely expressed himself with the help of a camera and microphone. They want to know who the artist is. The truth is that this individual of whom we are so proud is composed of such diverse elements as the boy he made friends with at nursery school, the hero of the first tale he ever read, even the dog belonging to his cousin Eugene. We do not exist through ourselves alone, but through the environment that shaped us. I have sought to recall the persons and events which I believe have played a part in making me who I am, right? But the beginning part is what hit me, which is that, isn't it enough that I've expressed myself freely with a camera and a microphone? I know you want to hear me talk about my cousin Eugene's dog, right? And I guess I'll tell you about that. But really, my movies have expressed themselves, right? So a lot of podcasts we do, I'm sure people are interested in that biographical information and love those little tidbits, but I'm very hesitant to reduce films to the biography of their artist, especially a film as great as High and Low. This is all a lead up to me saying, let's actually talk about that more than we normally do with a movie. You know, let's, let's actually give this a little bit of the autobiography treatment just because we don't do that sometimes. So I, I don't know why I had that antagonistic impulse with this film, but I feel like this is a movie I know so well. Um, I don't have to worry about losing my analysis and relationship to it in biographical detail, right? I'm very confident about my analysis and relationship to it. I can see this movie clearly and I won't lose it in the smoke and fog of biography. So maybe this is an interesting movie to see what value for me I can get out of that stuff. So I did a little more research on this movie than than I normally do. And it was fascinating to me, 
Although I'll say, I don't know that I got anything more out of it. The first thing that I want to talk about is understanding the plot of this movie much better than I did, right? Um, are you okay? Do you want to jump in with anything? This has been a long monologue. What do you think about, what do you think about my uh, allergy to biography? Are you on the same page with me? Yeah, absolutely. And actually the movie that it makes me think of is Quiz Show, which is a film that where, you know, we have Paul Schofield as this beloved professor who's the father of the Ray Fine character who becomes the superstar trivia show champion. And we kind of see throughout the film uh, what, how intellect changes and how education changes in what I think Redford is trying to say with this film, which is that, you know, it's not about absorbing artwork and like knowing Shakespeare and being able to like, take a Shakespeare quote and put it into your day, you know, just be able yeah. to like throw out a Shakespeare quote and say, this reminds me of, of, the, of such and such from Richard III. It's more about like, you know, what, what play about a hunchback King did, you know, Shakespeare, right. That's what becomes impressive. And what that's year what was want. it published? Yeah. The most heartbreaking moment of that movie is towards the end where fine goes to see uh, Paul Schofield at his uh, class and the students are actively making fun of him as they're leaving because this kind of interest in artwork and this kind of intelligence uh, is now, you know, completely passe. It's something that everyone thinks is old fashioned and completely boring. You know, that people want, you know, they want, they want what they see on television. They think that, you know, a smart person knows what year such and such movie came out or, you know, what the capital of such is. It's not something that's, you know, you're not applying the things that you're taking from artworks and, and from literature and putting them into the world, you're just memorizing, memorizing facts. Yeah, you know, like a, a neurotic doing. recitation of facts, which I find even stranger in the Wikipedia era, in the internet era. I can see before everyone had instant access to all information, the value of that kind of knowledge. That kind of knowledge doesn't have specific value anymore. Everybody can know the entire filmography of Takeshi Miike right? Everybody can know who directed Cleopatra and what year it came out. You know, everybody can know the names of the, the director of photography on, on, you know, a Howard Hawks movie. You know, everybody can get that instantly, almost as quickly as somebody can recall it from their own mind. You know, so that, to me, that trivia has even less power in the modern era. And somehow it's even more, um, it's, it's even more powerful. It's even more the standard. And I wonder if the access to all of it, which makes um, the creation of that kind of work and research even easier is what creates its power is that everybody can pretend to be an academic now because both the bar for what academia is has been lowered to the recitation of trivia and there's a free access of trivia to everybody. And yeah. I wonder if those two things do work together in some way. And there's more of an entertainment value to trivia in general, you know? Yeah, that and that kind enjoy. of like nerding out, like, let me just talk about, you know, let me just tell you about the names of these directors' movies, just say them in a row rapidly you know, and, right. and a list of directors I like, you know, that kind of just, I love the, you know, Garth Ennis run of Swamp Thing, you know, that kind of just like 
with no follow-up of because it's touching and beautiful and, you know, whatever, you know, with any kind of specificity. It's just kind of a recitation of people who have done things that you say that you like or dislike, you know? That's, yeah. that's what a lot of intellectual thought has been reduced to, you know? There's not that moment of, oh, wow, I am thinking of Shakespeare in this moment of beauty in my own personal life, and it's helping me to kind of understand the great cosmic inscrutability of the universe, that there's this moment of poetry that's somehow penetrating my heart. It's, you know, if, uh, the Globe Theater was founded on such and such a date, you know? Exactly, yeah. So I'm with you on that. That said, all that said, I don't know too much about the background of this movie, honestly, maybe for the same reason that I've avoided it all these years. The one thing I kind of thought about watching it this time was the class, the kind of interesting kind of class conflict that's going on in it. I thought about, you know, seven samurai and the, you know, warriors versus the farmers and things like that. I, I love the, the, how you've got obviously Gondo up in his hill. You've got the people down in hell where, you know, in the scorching heat. And then you have the cops in the middle, the kind of working men who are kind of down to their shirt sleeves and sweating and, and getting out there, but they're not suffering. They're doing their job. And they even, but even they have that moment where they look up to Gondo's house and say, man, it really does get to you. You know, when you're yeah, down here like, and you're oh, sweating your ass off. I know like we're working like, for him, but fuck this guy. You're resenting it, you know, because yeah. he's up there in his air conditioned house. And then it, even pans, the moment it pans down after they say that to like the garbage clogged canal. <laughs> right. You know, and you're like, yeah. yeah, this does suck indeed. Or even when Gondo has been taken down a peg and, you know, you see him mowing the lawn, which by the way, you can watch to uh, Mifune mowing a lawn for two hours i would do that like it's that incredible be... <laughs> that's also another incredible screenwriting gesture where you realize he's no longer has a lawn crew he has to mow his own lawn that's how where you yeah. know his financial things are going off the straights and then mafune's performances and he's losing his mind with guilt he's he's um he's beating himself up for the hesitation because he knows he made a cowardly decision that was forced on him. He can take no joy in sort of the public celebration of him that comes in response because he knows he made a cowardly decision. Yeah, you know? somewhat ironic, yeah. But so I think of all that and I wonder like what interests Kurosawa in this story? I mean, as someone who went on to become the most important director in his country, you know, like he, it's interesting that he still thinks about these things and these, you know, dynamics between people who have everything and people who have nothing. Yeah. Well, he was originally a Marxist and then sort of renounced those point of views uh, and stayed a hard leftist all of his life. Um, and there's definitely that kind of class critique in the movies. There's definitely a critique in this film of the uh, post-war economic miracles that both benefited the, the, fascist and Nazi nations that Germany had one in the 50s and Japan had one around the same era where these countries that should have been completely debilitated by the war instead uh, embraced uh, a reconciliation and Western capitalist values wholeheartedly and had these economic miracles and sort of started to become booming, started to become middle class, started to become modernized. And Kurosawa's very wary of that as well of the people who were fascists uh, a short time ago are now enjoying the benefits of stability and economic stability as well it's not nearly as pointed as it is in say fassbender but that concept is there as well that he's very much about 
um, class conflict. There's no question. The thing I was going to say, the thing I learned almost immediately about this movie that um, I, from my research that made the plot make a lot more sense is um, in post-war Japan, kidnapping was not a serious crime. It was classified as robbery. It carried a sentence of one to 10 years right? It carried almost no punishment whatsoever. So that is what they're freaking out about in the second half of this movie is that this kidnapper, even with the multiplier, right, that's put on it, is looking at a 15-year sentence tops, right, for kidnapping a kid and bankrupting Gondo, that he's looking for at 15 sentence tops, as low as a one-year sentence is a possibility for this guy. Right. And this movie's made in 1963. This movie was actually part of there's two things that happened. This movie plays a huge role in it, but they in 1964 changed the law that kidnapping can now carry a life sentence, which is the case in most countries that kidnapping has the possibility of a life sentence. This movie obviously pushed for part of it. Also, quite tragically, the copycat kidnapping that happened 30 days after the movie's release where the kidnapper watched this movie went out kidnapped uh yoshinobu uh murakoshi who was a four-year-old kidnapped him off the playground attempted to do the same uh kidnapping plot that was in this movie when it got botched he murdered the four-year-old right oh my god yes so this movie he never explicitly said i was trying to do high and low he admitted he had seen high and low. His plan was pretty much high and low. And so high and low uh, in a roundabout way, and not even a roundabout, directly led to the law change that, uh, that in Japan, um, life sentences, uh, kidnapping could carry a life sentence. This is also- if they, knew also he saw high, they knew he saw high and low because he said, no funny looking attache case. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, this movie you also have to place in the context of around the world in the early 60s, there's a massive crime boom in the United States, which is what I'm most familiar with the research on. Really, in 1960, it starts to happen. In 1962, it explodes. And by 64, the crime rates are going up these insane amounts, really like 70% a year rises. There's one of the things before we start to do this research for this book that you and I are working on, John, I thought that um, that that was all sort of made up, that it was like middle class hysteria. But if you look at the numbers, they're like shockingly true. And that's happening to Japan at a certain extent as well, that these uh, crime rates are blowing up. And so in the early 60s, you have the same arc in cinema. And you can see it if you listen to our Sage and Suzuki episode you have the same arc in cinema where in the late 50s and early 60s, you have all of these youth and revolt films like Blackboard Jungle or The Wild Ones being made uh, for Everything Goes Wrong, you know, the late 50s Sage and Suzuki movies, um, Underworld Beauty, that are sort of these troubled youth, youth and revolt movies that are being made to appeal to the boomer post-war kids that are now coming into adulthood, that are now hitting 15 14, 15 years old, you're essentially selling um, teen rebellion to angsty teens, to this massive amount of angsty teens. All of these teens hit the crime age 
at the same time. We know that most crimes, most felonies are committed by younger people. I think it's like age 17 to 25, the overwhelming majority of felonies are committed by, right? Because you're young, your brain isn't fully developed. When you have these boomer generations, and not that there's the same kind of baby boom in Japan, but when you have these young post-war generations all hitting the crime edge at the same time, these movies go from being youth and revolt films to being crime movie films and not being played to that audience, not having their um, angst coddled, but now playing to the middle class saying, there's this new crime, there's this incredible change in crime that's happening. And that's part of what High and Low is about as well, is addressing that change in crime, addressing this total landscape change that really hits it starts in 1960 in a very concrete way. And by 62, it's hitting. And then by 64, it's an undeniable explosion that happens around the world. And again, like all things, to a much greater extent in America to Japan, but you can see the echoes of it in Japan as well. And you, know, and you see a lot of the symbols of that change that you see in Seijin Suzuki's movies uh, in this movie, jukeboxes, Hawaiian shirts, cigarettes, um, you know, the kind of eyeshadow and eyeliner that women wear. There's all of these signifiers you can see in this movie in 1963 that in the late 50s are being used to depict youth and revolt people that are sort of signifiers that you're supposed to read as the cliches of this troubled generation you see showing up in a Kurosawa film and you don't see them in any of his other films for obvious reasons. It's certainly a case of Kurosawa making the characters more complicated. If you think about something like his more Yakuza-based films or his earlier crime films like Drunken Angel and Stray Dog, we're talking about faceless evil in Stray Dog, especially where you barely see the guy who's stolen the gun and is committing all the crimes. And Drunken Angel being, you know, you definitely have characters who are completely amoral characters, you know, in contrast yeah. to the ones that you have sympathy for. In this film, other than maybe the, you know, shitheel executives at the beginning you can understand and appreciate the motivation of almost everybody including the kidnapper who has the big house that you know is driving him insane down in in, in the heated hell the kidnapper reminded me so much this time of the villain from a man's head which we uh yeah. did an episode on it's a medical student who has this antipathy and anger for the wealthy people of the world and sort of maneuvers a wealthy couple into their humiliation through extortion it's that and yeah, then and true. then has a, a conversation at the end with one of the forces of of law and order about his sort of gnarled soul and disgust for the world yeah and he you know we feel that his loneliness too i mean yes. when we spend an hour with you know characters who are in this tense situation but are there supporting each other the cops being there and supporting gondo and his wife through this whole thing and trying to work together to find a solution you know we appreciate that like they have each other and they're trying to like work together when we see the kidnapper go to his apartment for the first time and looking at all these newspapers and really sweating that like he's feeling the noose like starting to uh, tighten around him you, you feel that he is completely alone you know you just understand that like he is someone who has to find his own solution to get out of this. And he does not have that kind of support. And his job is ostensibly helping people. He's a medical student and a doctor. So like Gondo, he's given an ethical lodestar. So you can't completely dismiss him. He's sort of given this lodestar of, of 
ethical behavior that allows you to, you know, he's not a corrupt junkie creep who's just out to, you know, he's somebody who he's, his fundamental purpose is to do good in the world, yeah. his fundamental yeah. day-to-day existence. If you think too about the way that Kurosawa uh, kind of uh, separates him in this movie, first, we only know him as this voice on the phone. Then we know him as this, we're following him around, but we do, he has no dialogue, you know, he doesn't speak. We just kind of see him in his day-to-day and then we kind of join the police as they, uh, you know, start following him and they, you know, finally identify who he is. And then it's not until the end, that amazing climax between him and Gondo where he comes to see him in the prison. Uh, the, the power of that scene is partly that we're now hearing him actually talk and like seeing him as a person, a complete person for the first time. He's kind of combining these two sides of him for the very first time in the movie in the last five minutes. I think it gives it a, like that extra bit of impact. But again, like kind of that isolation that yeah. we feel too, where he's like this disembodied voice, or he's just this guy wandering a around a pair of sunglasses. City. Yeah, exactly. I think that's like a really incredible. But even the corporate crime of the movie, uh, Kawanishi, the assistant. I don't want to. I don't want to move off the. I don't want to move off the um, kidnapper just yet because you're you're actually making a point, uh, mm-hmm. leading sort of to a point that when I learned this movie made more sense, learning about the one to ten year sentence for kidnapping, right? because it makes the detective behavior late in the movie make more sense where they don't want to arrest him immediately. They believe that he intentionally uh, administered an overdose to his accomplices to kill them, that he intentionally killed them. And they want to nail him for the double murder because they don't feel like the kidnapping sentence is going to be enough. So they uh, make the ethically dubious decision of allowing him to go out and about and free and he ends up killing another junkie on their watch because they want to nail him. They essentially want to uh, maneuver him into a position where it's clear that he committed the double murder, that it wasn't just two junkies overdose, that they were administered an overdose in some way by being given ultra pure heroin by this guy in a sort of deceptive tactic. But that's knowing the law makes their um, uh, quasi-ethical behavior of instead of just resting him for the kidnapping the moment they could of letting him go about and accidentally allowing him to commit another murder make more sense because they want to get him the death penalty and they can't even right. come close to touching him without uh, the double murder for it. The right. kidnapping their, their job, theoretically, the job is to get him off the street, right? So he's not yeah. a danger to anybody else. And what happens is that someone else dies, even though they had no way of knowing that he was going to test the pure heroin on yeah. somebody else. It's still very much the blood's on their hands. I am glad that they clear up the extortion thing early on, you know, where he kind of gloats to Gondo saying, hey, it's not even your kid. So this is technically just extortion. It's, it's not extortion. It's just, you yeah. know, kidnapping so i'm gonna get no time at all even if i get caught and then later on the cops are like no he's <laughs> he's making you pay him money it's fucking extortion that guy doesn't know what he's talking that, about that's I'm glad that's that not that's not real law that's bird law <laughs> that sounds like the law of a, of a medical assistant not a lawyer <laughs> um but you were going to say about the the um business yeah i was going to say about uh kawanishi right the assistant who, who backstabs him oh that uh, piece of shit who you know you think he's but, a piece of shit but 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 yeah he's right gondo is gambling his future along with his you know yeah if he if gondo goes down he's going down too and where's he going to be the only literally the only movie has to sell gondo out 
and take the executive position. That's the only way he's going to continue rising in his career. So as much as you hate him so much, at the same time, you're like, yeah, well, what are you, what are you going to do if you're that guy? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and also his you point, look out for yourself. His point of, he also makes a little point that I found interesting this time of, it's not even that you were going to pay the ransom. It's that you hesitated about what you were going to do. And I can't be tied to somebody who has no fucking plan. You know, that's essentially what he says as well, is that like, uh, I really, really wanted you to pay the money. You hesitated. The hesitation is the problem, not even right. decisively heading in the other direction. You sort of get the implication that maybe he would have stayed with him if from the beginning he was like, no, we have to pay the ransom. He could have been convinced. I'll go down with the ship. I doubt it. He's still a shitheel. <laughs> he still probably would have sold him out. Oh, but, definitely. But the, putting the, um, it's one of the interesting things to say people don't respond well to watching someone in the throes of an unresolvable moral quandary. Everybody from the outside looks at Gondo and is like, from their perspective, like, you wretch, you pathetic guy. But if you put yourself in his shoes, you can say, well, that's a really difficult question. But everybody looking at him from the outside, the cops sort of sharing glances at each other, his wife crying, is like, what are you doing? You got to pay the ransom. One of the most touching moments in the film is when Aoki, the chauffeur, is like, you know, I didn't think about your perspective, Gondo. And the chauffeur is so amazingly pathetic. It's this wonderfully pathetic performance where when the police first arrive, they don't even talk to him. His son has been kidnapped. They don't talk to him. They talk to Gondo. He's like a supporting player in the story of his own life. He's a background extra in the story of the kidnapping of his son, you know? And um, when he's, when he's breaking down and saying, you know what, you don't have to pay the ransom Gondo. The police are right. He's probably bluffing. Let's take that risk. I didn't think of it from your perspective. And that's the biggest knife in Gondo is somebody trying to understand him. And I think that's a really true thing about life is one of the things that just hurts you most is when you're in a difficult situation, when somebody who has much more of a right to grievance than you offers you sympathy. Nothing makes you feel worse than when somebody who has a much bigger right to grievance than you is like, hey, man, I understand where you're coming from. And you're like, don't (laughs) understand where I'm coming from. Tell me I'm wrong and I'll do it. Make me feel like a shit heel so I can either fight you or accept it. But don't be like, I get it, man. Take it off my shoulders in some way. Make this morally gray situation black and white through your attitude, you know? You're right. It's amazing that he's essentially a background player in all of this when even after it's over, he's so desperate to do something to like make it up to Gondo, even though it doesn't matter anymore. If he gets the money back, it's done. Like Gondo is ruined. He's still like taking his son out and like demanding that he try to recognize, you know, where they were or, you know, any other kind of clues he can give them. But it's so satisfying where they, run into the cops out there and the cops are just all annoyed with them. Like, get out, like stop trying to investigate. And they find the house. They do yeah. it, you know, together. But I also, just like I also love in that, that scene where he's so caught up and feels so guilty about what Gondo did for him that his son who was kidnapped, he's like, think you fuckhead. Yeah, think where you were kidnapped, you worthless little rat. abusing him. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, you know. Get, his son's you, just come out of this traumatic experience where he's been kidnapped and threatened. And he's did, like, did you Look, see, I'm going to smack you in the fucking yeah. head. Did you see the tunnel or not? 
Jesus Christ, you know, <laughs> he's just like has no patience with them. But that's really true and beautiful too, where your desire to repay something that somebody's done for you almost spiritually warps you. You know, I was thinking mm-hmm. about that, uh, about uh, the movie um, Mother, you know, when I was watching this this time, because he's a father as well. Just that idea of like uh, unconditional love can become a twisted, repulsive impulse. You know what I mean? Just yeah. how like good impulses can become morally gnarled, right? And his good impulse to to repay Gondo's uh, generosity forced hand generosity becomes morally gnarled. And this movie is just so incredible in that way where just things that seem good can get twisted into looking bad and things that seem bad can get twisted towards the good, maybe not turned into it, but the moss that's growing on that one side of the rock can get turned towards the sunshine in some way. That root and branches, which is twisted, can get turned towards the light. You know, and I think that or turn towards the darkness. I think that that's what's happening continuously throughout this movie. Uh, Another thing that I wanted to just talk about to contextualize this film that I was thinking about is let's just go through what was happening in Japanese cinema at the time. Just go through the similar films that are around 1963. I contextualized it a little bit with the youth and revolt films that are popular in the late 50s and early 60s and then you have the the crime films that are sort of happening at the same time um you okay with that yeah with digging into it um so just to sort of go through in a, a trivia kind of way at 1963 you either have at that same year or in a year bordering it uh masahiro shinoda makes pale flower in 64 which is one of the um key films in sort of the Japanese new wave, but it's also a gangster film. It's also a crime film that's incredibly stylistic, uh, stylistically adventurous. Seijin Suzuki has a banner year for him, One really one of the crucial turning point years for him in 63, where he makes uh, Detective Bureau 2, 3, Go to Hell Bastards, uh, The Bastard, Canto Wanderer, and Youth of the Beast. That's like the year he becomes Seijin Suzuki in a lot of ways is 63 that he sort of, he makes his best movie that year. He makes one of his uh, lightest um, detective comedies. And then he makes Kando Wanderer, which has the um, art direction by Takeo Kimura, who's like the, the Kabuki background guy, experimental theater guy, not Kabuki, but experimental theater guy who completely changes Suzuki's movie. And Kanto Wanderer is one of the movies where he really starts to, to blow the doors off things. Uh, you have Hiroshi Teshigahara makes Woman in the Dunes right around the same time. This is another one of the art films that really start to redefine what Japanese cinema is. Um, uh, Teruo Ishii is just starting out, uh, makes a few movies in 64. He's one of the main guys um, in popular Japanese gross stuff, right? That will sort of be the hallmark of the 60s and 70s. You know, all of that sort of gross, rapey, violent, tentacle porny stuff that we associate with Japanese pop culture starts to happen in the late 60s. And this is the guy who made stuff like Horrors of the Malformed Mend and Shogun's Joy of Torture. He's still sort of just making Yakuza movies in this time, but he's starting out, right? Um, It's just in the moment before like the the um 
pinky violence, total degradation of Nakatsu turning into sort of a porn studio that Seiju and Suzuki's critiquing and Carmen Fukuichi happens. Uh, it's, it's just before that moment. I'd say that artists like Shinoda and Teshigahara opened the door for both revolutionaries of the late 60s, like uh, Teriyama, who made uh, Throw Away Your Books Rally in the Streets, and Matsumoto, who made Funeral Parade of Roses. They opened the door for those guys, but also the pinky violence kind of shit that Shinoda and, and Teshigahara, with sort of the explicitness and weirdness and perversity of their movies, opens the door for the really bold experimental art that is comes in the Japanese new wave, but also like, the sort of gross, embarrassing shit, you know? Um, and 63, when High and Low is made, is the moment when the door has been blown open in some ways by Shinoda, Suzuki, Teshigahara, but all that other stuff hasn't come through it yet. So it's clear a change is going to happen, right? But the, the happening hasn't happened yet. You sort of don't know what's going to happen. It's also like right before the ascent of Fukasaku, right? Of Kenji Fukasaku, who I love, but I think of as the anti-Kurosawa for a lot of reasons. If only that he was the sort of journeyman company man brought in to replace Kurosawa on Tora, 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 right? That he makes a kind of movie that's like anti-Kurosawa cinema. And his first movie is 61. Um, you've got a couple more years before he becomes the guy, but as far as the old masters to a lot of them that Kurosawa's generation or that he's even slightly before guys like Kinoshita, he makes the scent of incense this year. They're all still working. Kobayashi probably has is in the midst of the best little stretch of his career with Harakiri and Kwaidan coming to in 62 and 64. Ichikawa makes what might be his best movie with revenge of a Kabuki actress. So these guys are still going strong. Kurosawa makes his forerun film, Yojimbo Sanjuro, High and Low and Redbeard, that I think is his best four film run possibly. I mean, no one's gonna say you're a lunatic for thinking that, right? So these guys are all making some of their absolute finest film, but this is the era in which because the door has been low and open and changes are coming and they're sort of making their apex masterpieces, they've become grand old men. They're not young filmmakers anymore. They're grand old men. And they go from making a movie or two every year in the late uh, late 60s, throughout the 60s, to making a film every three or four years. Kurosawa slows down after Redbird to only making a movie every five years. And then in the 70s, they make even fewer. And then basically by the 80s, they all make one or two. Ozu passes away in 63, right? What bigger signal of the changing of the guard is there than Ozu passing away? And so that's the context in which high and low is coming. And I think it's interesting to look at Kurosawa, again, who unlike Kinoshita or Kobayashi or Ichikawa, mates those guys on their own turf with high and low. Seijun Suzuki, Shinoda, even Ishii uh, could have made this movie, right? He's meeting a lot of those um, genre directors on their own terms, on their own turf, to kind of engage the material they're engaging uh, in his own fashion. And I think that's an interesting context to put this movie in. I wouldn't have really connected it to any of that 
kind of work. As much as I love Suzuki and Shinoda, this movie is so much better than any of the films I've mentioned uh, before this. Basically, I think the only <clears throat> movies I've mentioned that are on its level are the Grand Old Man movies or Woman in the Dunes. I think the rest of it, it's so far above them that it's easy to lose sight of. He's responding to what's happening in genre film as well. That's interesting. I, I'll tell you two things that are always so frustrating and make this whole thing so complicated when you're talking about the history of Japanese cinema around this time. Yeah. And those two things are, uh, there's not really a concentrated idea of what the Japanese new wave was when you're talking about filmmakers like Imamura and Oshima yeah. and everything like that, and what's going to come. I mean, these are guys who are making films throughout the 60s, but really take off in the 70s and really become like the guys yeah. at that time. But there's nothing really unifying other than the fact that the films are great. And another thing is that Kurosawa obviously was constantly under fire by saying he was too Americanized, you know, like his films were not Japanese yeah. enough that um, he uses American film, music cues, American novel adapted for high and low, right? He's taking this Ed McBain novel. Um, and yeah, everything, you know, so there's this constant idea that like, you know, he's being separated, that he has become just Kurosawa. He hasn't become like, Japan's Kurosawa he's just kind of going off doing his own thing but when I think about this film specifically and kind of sort of the themes one of the themes that isn't a big deal in the movie but is sort of there in the foreground is the sort of idea of the kind of secure family unit against like the individual and the individual is notably younger younger the kidnapper is notably younger than gondo is yeah um makes me think of films like 62's the graceful brute the uh kawashima film which is all about you know like um an embezzlement it. it's a great film it's all about you know like this embezzlement committed by this young son and a family kind of getting together to kind of cover it up and mm -hmm. you know kind of where they'd spent two decades the japanese film industry kind of has spent two decades kind of observing like the war and what happened in the you know the wake of the war and kind of recovering from that once they kind of move past that and it's 20 years, you know, getting on 20 years past the war, the end of the war, then it becomes sort of like, you know, well, what is this new generation and how are they, you know, going to relate to these people who are trying to maintain a certain kind of semblance of what the traditional Japanese family is. Yeah. And high and low, again, doesn't really get too much into that, but I think that that's still there. It's still this idea of like, you got this, you know, young single man who is going to commit this terrible crime. Versus, you know, this staid, loving family who are very much, you know, of the kind of like traditional Japanese idea of success yeah. and upward mobility and just, you know, being uh, a solid foundation uh, that's shattered by this guy because he's like a punk, right? He's like, yeah. it's almost kind of ties into the kind of youth crime movies that you're talking about. It's fascinating Because here's a guy too. who's going to come in yeah. here and have his sunglasses and, you know, buy yeah. heroin and kill people with drugs um and, and the great dancing we haven't mentioned at all he goes to actually buy the drugs there's this one guy kurosawa loves him who was just boogieing in every single shot he's like this young african-american guy 
I love the woman in the foreground nuts. who catches the uh, lasso in real amendment. Yeah, yeah, she like, does the lasso move. I noticed that, yeah. You I know, one that. movie that I didn't mention from 1963 that you made me think of by talking about the family unit is Shohei Mamura's The Insect Woman, right? Which mm-hmm. basically the theme of that movie is that the traditional idea of Japanese family is a lie, more or less. You know, that the idea yeah. of, 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 of Japanese motherhood is actually, you know, pretty vicious and vile and then you know her political children are a fucking joke you know what i mean yeah, like that yeah. there's that it sort of comes very like all Mamura movies it's it's smiling cynicism but it comes at it from both angles and insect woman kurosawa what makes him belong to that old generation is it's inconceivable him making the insect woman you know it's yeah, it's yeah. inconceivable for him to be that cynical about life and power structures and that sort of thing in traditional structures. Whereas you see something like Insect Woman that's all about ripping into them very explicitly. Yeah, yeah a connective theme of the new wave directors might even be just breaking those barriers. You know, these traditional questions, these traditional ideas and everything. And even Fukasaku made films like that, you know, around the yeah. 70s and things. Uh, but um, but yeah, the, the, the dance scene, the dance hall scene, you see in so many Japanese movies, even Godzilla movies have the yeah. dance scene where it's like, here's our crazy youth today. They're just dancing there, you know. You know they're off. bad because they're in a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, exactly. These hedonistic like dance halls where they're just they're dancing until they, they just crumble onto the floor and sweat and you know, they just you feel like they're just gonna dance themselves to death. This is the youth of today. He goes back to the dance hall, which is Kurosawa's one opportunity to kind of show this sort of sordid environment with this youth. And even more kind of funny and kind of compounding to it is that it's covering up a crime. It's this guy buying heroin that he's going to then use to murder somebody. So it's not just this like, you know, hedonistic kind of dance situation. It's literally there are horrible things happening within this, you know, environment. So I think that's funny to have this weird kind of Kurosawa take on the, this this comment on Japanese youth of like not only are they all dancing like crazy well they're killing people too but that's yeah. but that's very much that's the stereotype and the cliche throughout Suzuki's movies is jukebox equals delinquency you see it over right. and over he always yeah. frames his bad characters and introduces them fucking around with the jukebox when he's making the youth and revolt film and that's not something kurosawa was inventing for this he's doing his own spin on it you know? exactly that's what i mean yeah 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 when he goes back to the dance hall no um it's funny that you mention uh uh the uh the the french new wave a little bit in this and uh or that you mention the japanese new wave and how there's nothing unifying to it unlike the French New Wave and how the Kurosawa was dismissed for being Americanized and Westernized a bit. Uh, I read a bunch of reviews of this movie. American critics definitely uh, dismiss it as more kind of genre nonsense, like the genre movies that are inconsequential, quote unquote, inconsequential, that are coming out of Japan at that time. It's very dismissed as you know, uh, this is not uh, a movie of any great consequence because of its genre subject matter. I was wondering, I knew the French New Wave had not been an advocate for Kurosawa at all, which I always found sort of surprising because I felt like he is interacting with Western culture in a way uh, 
that's pretty clear, you know, from the books he's choosing to adapt, whether it's Dostoevsky or Ed McBain, from the kind of stories he's trying to do and the music cues and the style of performances, he is having a Western approach and sort of influenced by American low culture and high culture simultaneously, Western low culture and high culture. Dostoevsky is not American, obviously, in a way that reminds me of the French New Wave guys. He has his totally own unique style, but they're also interacting with Western and American pop culture, with genre culture in the same way. It always sort of surprised me that um, they weren't his advocates. So I pulled out the films in my life, Truffaut's The Films in My Life, um, to look in the index. And he supposedly only mentioned one time in the book, page 297, I flipped to page 297, and it's an error or something. He's not mentioned on that page at all. It's the middle of James Dean's obituary. It's not in there. And so I don't think he's mentioned once in the films in my life, which is crazy. Now, Truffaut was famously kind of a bonehead with, with uh, non-European foreign movies and non-American foreign movies. He's it said some particularly idiotic stuff about Satya Jit Ray, which he later apologized for. And he doesn't really know what to do with a lot of Japanese movies. Like he can see something of like, uh, like Kenoshita's Ballad of Nayarama and be like, that's a great movie. I don't really understand what's happening here. You know, like he kind of has that reaction to a lot of it, but it is crazy that to me that, that one of the directors that is obviously one of the all time Titans of cinema uh, and definitely, you know, there's no way to rate him outside of the top three Japanese directors of all time. You would have to be uh, a lunatic to find a way to force him out of there. Isn't even mentioned by the French New Wave, who you would think would be have something to say about him, that they'd either want to take him down or build him up because that's basically all they did. But he's just like persona non grata. And when you read the American movies, uh, reviews of this movie at the same time too. It's shocking how not seriously he's being taken. And you see this is going to lead into Redbeard, which is like the departure point and in, in sort of the life-changing moment. I don't want to say disaster for Kurosawa, but when like everything changes for Kurosawa in which he slows down making movies uh, later tries to commit suicide because of what's happening to his career and changes the aesthetic style of his movies completely. I, the one sequence in this movie I've never particularly liked is when the kidnapper goes to Skid Row where all of the strung out heroin addicts are. And I've always felt like this is very stylistically over the top that you have these zombified, it's supposed to be literal hell he's descending into in some way, not literal hell, metaphorical hell he's descending into in some way, delivered with an aesthetic that literalizes it. How about that? And makes it, again, doesn't literalize it. There's not flames and demons and shit in there, <laughs> but makes it feel like hell that he's going into. But it's very over the top. The performances are very over the top. It's a lot of shambling, itching, scratching. And I've always felt like this goes a little too far for me. But this time watching it, I felt like, oh, he's, this is the moment where he realizes he's headed towards Dodeskaden, right? Like this is when he realizes he's going to make, because his post-Redbeard movies, where he has Dodeskaden, that's sort of like a giant aesthetic change that's not a super successful movie that leads him to Kagamusha and Ran and Dreams, 
right? Where he develops this entirely new stylized style and new aesthetic and use of color, right? I think he's discovering it in that sequence. I think mm. that that sequence is when he's realizing there is a level of aestheticizing and, uh, and plasticizing of the material that I haven't explored yet. And I want to go there and I want to see what it's like. And seeing it this time contextualize that sequence for me. What do you think about that sequence? I think that's interesting. I think it definitely feels like something out of Jigoku or um, yeah. a Japanese horror film more than anything. And you're right. I mean, the overstylization where, you know, you have almost a no theater style uh, representation of like a heroin den. It's definitely something that feels like even with, even with Rashomon, even with, I'm thinking specifically of the, uh, the clairvoyant scene from Rashomon. Yeah. Isn't quite as crazily overstylized as that scene. Um, and I think, you know, I think you're right. I think that he, it's, overly expressionistic in a way that would become kind of characteristic of his later films. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that in terms of his uh, post uh, red beard uh, output, but that's it. And he really doesn't do a lot of that. The, the only thing that's as stylistically wild preceding that sequence that I can think of is the, is the please clap for us moment in one wonderful Sunday. <laughs> That's one of his only well, really big, he makes very stylish movies. There's no question yeah, I, that the rainstorm in, you know, um, even, yeah, even, even, yeah. even more, I think the witches from throne of blood, you know, yeah. are not, you know, the witch, I should say from throne of blood is not even as like kind of over the top theatrical. Mm-hmm. And no, there's, there's a realism to it yeah. that he's trying mm-hmm. to find a grounded realism to it, that, that he is, um, most of high and low is like stray dog or the second half of it is like stray dog of just procedural on the street, uh, you know, amount of realistic grime to it. You know, I, every film is going to be stylized to a certain extent, but there's a grounding to it, you know, and that sequence is ungrounded, you know, and there's very few sequences as stylish as they get as over the top as they get, like again, thrown a blood. And when these, arrows are being shot this is an over-the-top sequence it's still grounded in something in some sort of verifiable reality that the sequence in high and low doesn't want to be grounded in uh at all you know i think it wants to be something else and i think that's when he's realizing i can go further that there's a new direction i can go in with this movie well, I don't want to. One thing I want to make sure to talk about before we wrap up is how what a I've great still procedural. Got more to talk about. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then forget that I said that. Let me just say another thing to talk about is what a great procedural this film is. Yeah. I mean, the cops are not the main characters. You know, the way you kind of think of most procedurals as being, you know, about the cop and about the investigation. Uh, the cops in this movie when they do things like, you know, figure out, describe the car to the kid and show the car to the kid, it's like magic. You know, yeah. when they actually like do good police investigation and have everyone, you know, coming in with new information and they put it all together, it is fantastic to watch. It is so entertaining. And it becomes an interesting sort of uh, kind of hangout moment too after, you know, the, the tension of the first hour of the movie when it's like, okay, now let's go get this guy. Let's become the bloodhounds. And that's when it becomes 
just like a fun movie to follow along with and like see how they're going to put it all together and how they're finally going to get this guy. And like Gondo went with his uh, you know, decision kind of being taken out of his hands conveniently, they get a lot of breaks, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the pink smoke is who would have thought that this guy was, you know, take the suitcase in and say, burn this pop, you know, and that they would just happen to see the pink smoke rising at that moment. I mean, there's this kind of a weird, uh, kind of cosmic energy going on to this investigation where half of it is like really like hitting the streets, you know, uh, hope, hopefully they bought their shoes from, you know, the uh, national before it, 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 <laughs> it went bad. So those shoes won't fall apart with all of the, uh, the legwork they're doing, but uh, half of it is that. And then half of it is just like this, uh, you know, Kurosawa just kind of weaving things together in a really kind of magical way. Yeah. And we should mention too, that again, to just, hey, audiences might know that, might not realize this. There's a fantastic moment in the movie where this, that he's going to burn the evidence and it's going to leave pink smoke, right? And then they'll know if he burns these valises that, that that's where it's coming from. The film is black and white. And when the, um, and then when the evidence is burned, there's a plume of pink smoke that's in color on the skyline. And it's such an incredible moment in the movie to have this one bold shot of color. Uh, but I mentioned, it's funny, 1963, you have Youth of the Beast by Seijin Suzuki that also has black and white with a splash of color in it. Now, on our Seijin Suzuki episode, uh, Tony Stella actually says that uh, Youth of the Beast came first and High and Low came after it he gets that backwards that um, uh, that actually youth of the beast came second and high and low was released right before uh, youth of the beast was going into production. So likely Seijun Suzuki had literally just seen this uh, artistic gesture. And then like two or three weeks later went into production on youth of the beast. <laughs> and either and, way, incorporating yeah. this color into the black and white specifically is yeah. just such an amazing feat. Uh, I was just watching George Kikur's The Women, which is a film yeah. that famously has a color sequence in the middle of the movie. But it's not, It's not. you know, it doesn't feel, it just feels like something that, that's showing off, you know, that new technology. It doesn't feel like something that's like thematically interwoven into this film, that that pink smoke rising has got to hit the audience as powerfully as it does these characters. And the way to do that is to, bring it out of the screen, you know, make it be something that is completely unique in and of itself. It's just absolutely gorgeous. So we named our website after it for that reason. Yeah. And, you know, it was really, it was really, I feel like we lucked out on, you know, finding a movie that we still agree on 15 years later after naming the site that just like, we basically didn't have any other good ideas for a site name, but can you imagine if it was like some movie that we liked then that we've since like gotten sick of, you know, like, can you right. I'm trying to think of like, what a funny example. Can you imagine if the movie was called dopey Chinaman because we love Paul Haggis's crash so much that would be so embarrassing because we don't like that movie anymore. We've totally outgrown. That would be the only reason it would be embarrassing to call the website that. It was um, our number one favorite movie of 2005. No, but if like we had been 15 years old and called it, you know, yeah, no, uh, I, the movie something from we called it, ain't it cool? Or if we had called it, we have called it, you are the boxing man from the radio. <laughs> 
we called it blueberrypancakes.com. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, yeah, exactly. It's just something that we were into that we're not into anymore. It's we really lucked out by having a movie that my appreciation of it has only, has only deepened over time. Um, uh, the Hudsucker Proxy server. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, one other thing I did want to talk about, another thing that I found, it was actually, I was reading an interview, I think it's a Criterion interview even, with Takeshi Mieke, where he's talking about this movie and how much he loves it. This whole movie builds to uh, a final epilogue where right before um, the kidnapper is set to be executed, he's requested that Gondo come see him in prison, right? Instead of seeing a priest, he wants to see Gondo. So Gondo comes and they have this incredibly powerful scene where they're each on the side of the glass from each other there's a cage in between them and glass and their reflections are on each side so their faces it's like dual double exposure close-ups of each other melding into each other and king gondo has the line that i always think of why should we hate each other you know why do you think we should hate each other and it's just it's such an amazing scene it's such just you you can't do a better scene than this, right? Um, it's it's really hard to imagine shooting, performing, writing, all of it. It's fantastic scene, knockout scene as an epilogue too, and sort of the the uh, the final you know calligraphic gesture to make the character complete. You know yeah. that that you've written so much, and then this is the gesture that completes the character, right? Because again- hell has to coexist, you know, that they have to both, they need each other. Yeah. And that when that kind of stylistic moment where uh, the kidnapper freaks out and then they just slam the door between them. Yeah. That's the one moment Gondo is really alone the way the kidnapper has been the entire time. Yes, absolutely. But what I learned from this Mieke interview is he claims that, the script initially ended with a scene between Nakadai and Mifune going for a walk together, right? But then when they started filming, this ending was so forceful that they just cut that scene from the movie, right? Which I find really fascinating that the way Kurosawa would discover his movies on set. And another thing in this interview that Nieke talks about is that apparently with every Kurosawa film, there are dozens of versions of any given script and that, not that there were rewrites, but there was never a definitive version, right? That he would just sort of pick and choose from these different versions of scripts that he had written, or it would be 80% one script and then 5% another, but there was never a, this is the final draft that we worked from, right? That the scripts were always a jumping off point in some way, which makes the writing of this movie, uh, the scripting of this movie even more crazy. And it's a, it's a Kikushima, not a Hashimoto. Shinobu Hashimoto is the guy that wrote uh, a lot of Kurosawa's most famous films. He also wrote uh, Kobayashi's um, Harakiri, which we mentioned. He's probably, he's up there with the greatest screenwriters of all time. He's certainly in the Jean-Claude Carrière conversation. I think that that might what hold him back is he doesn't have as distinctive a personality as as Carrier does. Um, but this is not Hashimoto. This is a, a Kikushima, which surprised me a little bit. Kikushima is somebody who collaborated a huge amount with um, Kurosawa as well. He sort of used one or the other 
was the way he did it. But finding out that the way these scripts are, were sort of written and employed by Kurosawa was very shocking to me. It was very surprising to hear that that's the way he made movies because his movies are so precise. But I think that the lesson you learn from Kurosawa about how to make great art is simply be Kurosawa. That that's, that that's the only lesson you can take from an artist this good is there's no, what's the secret to it? The secret, what, what's the secret, Max? Um, the secret is be Kurosawa, you know? And that's you're born to this world to make masterpieces. That's, that's your job, you're Kurosawa. Yeah, and, but I find that to be a really touching thing in his preface to his autobiography as well, um, is that he says, I was worried about writing an autobiography because I didn't want to talk about my movies. And I worried that if you took Kurosawa and subtracted movies from it, the end of the equation was zero, right? And that's so sad to me in some way. That's so such a sad expression to me in some ways to know he's this incredible artist, but for him to feel like there's no value to that, that his personality is the greatest director of all time is valueless, you know, in some way yeah. is heartbreaking. So much that makes me wonder if that's why Preston Sturgis doesn't talk about any of his movies in his autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just because Preston Sturgis actual interests were like steaks and whiskeys <laughs> and motors and pouring money into unsuccessful restaurants. I, I do prefer the original ending of High and Low with uh, Fune and uh, Nakadai just doing a big high five, freeze frame. Take this out of the movie. We got him. We sure shook the pillars of hell, didn't we, Nakadai? Didn't we, Kingo? Yeah, no shit. No, I don't, I don't know uh, Nakadai's character's name in the movie. Um, uh, Inspector Takora. Takora. No shit, Takora. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I, that was a pretty good ending where they, where they mow the lawn together. Um, one more lawnmower race. You got it, Takura. Um, and then freeze frame, he's, carry on my wayward son starts blaring. And I'm like, this is too much Western music. Aoki's got Shinochi out there trying to find the kidnapper. What he should be doing. Seven Shinochi mow the goddamn lawn. So Gondo can fucking uh, But even that, the stuff with, with Shinchi is this is filmed in Yokohama, right? That's another thing Miyake talks about is like, he, he went to, uh, was from Yokohama and he saw this movie and was like, holy shit, it's Yokohama. You know, and having that reaction of like, why would anybody make a movie in my town? But they think it's the uh, the famous mountain that's overlooking uh, Yokohama is what the kids drawing is supposed to be of. But they actually realize it's a shitty kids drawing. It's this other island. And that's where they should be looking. <laughs> that's something I love as well. I also love his drawing of the killer. That's what I say. Like, I love that drawing. Yeah, maybe that'll be helpful. And you look at it and you're like, why well, you're going to get it, Shinji. <laughs> and then it's like, but he's got a bandage on his hand. He always wears, you know, so it's another like, what is this idiot kid even do? Shinji, we're giving you back to him. That's how the movie treats Shinji <laughs> in the second half. Uh, but, uh, but it's actually, it's quite revealing. And I think that that's um, one of the themes of the movie as well. That's sort of an interest of his that's not necessarily um, in the forefront of this movie. It's in the forefront of his other movies. But how does art communicate information? How does art communicate something essential that you have in its relationship to the drawings 
where drawings are misinterpreted, drawings are conveying information that's of essential interest that's initially overlooked, you know, all of these different kind of approaches to these, these drawings. And Kurosawa obviously did these beautiful paintings for the storyboards for his films, especially the later films like Ran and Kagamusha have these incredible painted storyboards that Kurosawa himself has done. So he's obviously thinking about painting and fine arts a lot too. I think that it's, it's, it's a pointed, easy to connect the dots thing there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that he has like a, you know, a true genuine love for businessmen who think like artists, you know, who want to make a shoe that is stylish, but also a good product. Yeah. And that he has, you know, appreciation for shitty art that can actually solve a, solve a kidnapping case. <laughs> Very true. So John, do you think we, do you think we did it? Do you think we got it? Do you think we did? Do you think we just did a Rafferty talking rules of the game or do you think we did something interesting? Hell no, no. I think that I feel, I don't think I could ever feel or have a Rafferty style kind of exhaustion with this film. This is just one that would I'd always be excited to talk about and could do another episode. The next episode is going to be about high and low, everybody, you know, like we can yeah. do it. I don't think it's an exhaustion. I think do you think we lost sight of it? And do you think we can still communicate to audiences about it? I think we can. This is certainly not a movie that we've over discussed either though. I think Kurosawa in general, you and I are massive Kurosawa fans. How often does he come up when we're talking about other movies? This might be the first time we've really talked about him in depth other than the, the sort of jokey thing at the end of the year in review. It's true. I mean, it's, Kurosawa is certainly the kind of director who is so prevalent and so, you know, overreaching that you could easily take him for granted and say, you know, oh, my favorite filmmaker is, oh, Imamura, Bunuel, Svenkmeyer. And you never mention Kurosawa when he's clearly number one. You know, yeah. but that's just because it's like, do I even need to say Kurosawa? Obviously I don't. He also belongs to no individual cinephile. There's no way to be protective of him and over-identify with him because he is so um, universally known, you know, internationally known to rock a microphone, um, but just universally embraced by cinephiles. It's sort of, it's not an expression of my personality to like Kurosawa. You know what I mean? That, that yeah. there's that problem as well. Do you think he's a little underrated? I think he might ultimately be a little underrated. That isn't the way that the greatest is always underrated in some mm. fundamental fashion. Yes, he might be the first underrated overrated <laughs> of all time. Uh, I think that the taxonomy of what you've just said there probably doesn't hold up to scrutiny, but I'm certainly, <laughs> I'm glad to have talked about him with you. You and I don't talk about him that much either. You know, I, I think it's also like, it's understood about Kurosawa. You and I give each other the, you know, the, the, the head nod. We give each other the rolling thunder head nod. I just, I walk in the kitchen. You're having family with your dinner. I give you the nod. You come up and you leave with me. That's our yeah. relationship on Kurosawa. <laughs> Absolutely. The damn site's named after him. What more do you have to say? <laughs> <laughs> I had a son. I was going to say he beat Tashiro, but then I guess that's a Drew McWean thing. So never mind. <laughs> he'd yeah. be Gondo. The kid would be named Gondo. Gondo. He'd be, he'd, named, Gondo. he'd be named Kingo. And last year would have ruined his life. 
Wow. Can you imagine? Kingo's is Kingo's his name. Ten years of his life, he's fine. Last year, suddenly, <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! I'm named oh. after I'm named after the Stuber guy. <laughs> Kingo Cribs has got a good ring to it, though. You got <laughs> Kingo Cribs is a fantastic name. I'm renaming your daughters Kingo. Both of them, <laughs> Kingo One and Kingo Two. Damn, I feel like there's one more thing I did we didn't talk about that I feel like we should say it now and put it in the episode somewhere. <laughs> what is it? What did we need it's to talk about? My favorite moment in the movie. Which Him, is? Uh, it's it's when he, uh, it's the moment you mentioned in passing where he uh, he sits on the floor to rig up the attaché case and he says to himself, starting over already. You know, because he's getting, he's, like you said, he got his old uh, apprentice kiss, kit. Yeah, and he's doing it the old, you know, the old-fashioned way. He's doing it by hand, and he's going back to the basics. And I feel like that's something that a great giant like Kurosawa probably never like lost sight of himself was like, you know, going back to square one and just you know taking the old tools of the trade, never forgetting like you know what the basic thing is, which is that even if you're running a shoe business, you got to know how to get down on your knees and make a shoe. You know, like yeah. build the build the product. And I think that that's why all his films are great is because he never lost sight of, you know, just the, every little element of filmmaking that, you know, he had to put himself into. And there's all those little elements that make up the big picture. That's really great. Just to ruin your moment, I'm looking at my notes. The only two things I had in my notes that I didn't mention that were just like little moments I love was uh, at the end when he's talking, uh, I believe it's to to the police, to Nakadai, and uh, maybe it's Bosun and the auctioneers come in and put a sticker on one of the chairs they're sitting on. And they're like, oh, and they're like, no, you can sit on it until auction. I just love that his house is getting sold out from underneath of them. And but also how friendly the auctioneer is like, no, no, keep sitting. It's all good. There's no problem. <laughs> you can sit on this till auction. Also, at the uh, beginning, when reminds uh, me, though, the part of uh, the bell and the bet when they're confiscating the, the the repo men are coming and confiscating all the furniture literally out from everybody you know while they're like playing chess and they like take the chessboard or the table with the chessboard away from them or in uh yo-yo when he's going to hang himself and he sets oh. up a noose and <laughs> yes. goes to get on the chair and the guys repossess the chair so he can't even hang himself and he just the has to stand there looking brilliant beautiful moment this is a terribly idiotic thing to end the episode on but this time watching it too when the kidnappers like so I didn't get your son. You're still going to play the black, pay the blackmail. And Kingo's line is, I will not. And it reminded of, what are you trying to do? Blackmail me. You will not. <laughs> it's true. Gongo was the original Mr. Barnett. What are you trying to do? Blackmail me. Have a good night, everybody. Subscribe to our Patreon so we can pay our writers. There's monthly bonuses each month. There's early access to each episode. Uh, we love our Patreon subscribers. We try and do a great job with that. Offer Patreon-only exclusive episodes and many episodes. Uh, we really need your support. We really love your support. And keep listening. Keep, keep it in your heart. Keep it in your heart.